The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Before before I preach, before we move to that and I pray, I want to say something else here and invite you to something. Because, and maybe it's just that I didn't get a lot of sleep last night. But I feel a little bit asleep right now. And I think maybe it's because of my sleep loss, but it could also be because a lot of what we do this morning is so familiar to us. The songs are so familiar to us. The passage is so familiar to us that we're not really engaged with it. I I love what we've been doing with the advent of hearing these familiar passages read in foreign languages, Afrikaans, Afrikaans this morning. Cool. But are we listening to it and, and engaged with, when we hear it in English, what it's about? Some Christmas songs are light and fluffy, and all they are is a warm fuzzy. Let's be honest. But some of them have some solid content. Are you engaged with it? I don't know. And as I sit here right now this morning, turn with me to Psalm 43. As I sit here this morning, I, I'm saying... I'm afraid to go preach right now. Because I'm afraid I'm going to step up there and in and of myself talk for a little while. And the pulpit is a scary place to be standing in the flesh. So I want, I want to ask you to pray with me. I'm going to read a couple of verses Make a couple of comments here. Psalm 43, verses 3 and 4. The psalmist says, Send out your light. This is a prayer to God. Send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. That day he's talking about the temple, to come into God's presence is what we should think about. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God my God. What this is for right now is that we would gather together in the presence of God before Him. That the words that we hear sung and the words that we hear read would be His light and His truth coming out to us and would grab us and draw us into His presence and breathe life into us. So please, pray with me that God would show up. That God's Spirit would take the words that we sing and the words that we hear read and the words that I'm about to say and would, by His Spirit, would live in them and own them and move them into our hearts and change us and bring us into His presence where there is exceeding joy. Real joy. Pray with me for that now. And and don't let it be just a rote prayer, the same kind of prayer I always pray before I preach. Pray with me. 
Please, let's pray. God, I confess to You that I am cold. And maybe it's just me, but there's something that feels cold here. And it should not be because we sing of and we speak of marvelous things. We hear Your Scripture read and we sing songs about You coming into the world. If You had not done that, we would never know You. But You have. Bless Your holy name. And I pray that by Your Spirit, not by, not by some emotionalism here, I don't want to go into that, but by Your Spirit, You would grab a hold of us and You would turn a corner here in our hearts and You would send out light and truth to draw us to You our joy. Please. God, I'm a, I'm a man with frail lips and feet of clay, and all of us are. And if Your Spirit does not come and take control of our hearts and fill us, that is, direct us and empower us and have Your way with us, We have no power. So I ask, would you please come and be here and open up your Scriptures to us. This morning we look at 1 Corinthians 2. Would you open up your Scriptures to us and make them real and to live and and the, the very simple point in them would be expressed in a way that would help us and honor you. Draw us into your presence. Would you do that, please, Spirit of God, for the glory of Christ, glory of Christ, for the good of this, your church, I pray. Amen. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 this morning. We look at the first five verses, and I think that as we look at them, a lot of us are going to say, I'm familiar with those verses. They are a rather well-known set of verses that are about how to build a church how the church has grown. And my prayer, my hope is that this morning, as we move through this, that more than just becoming familiar, or more familiar to us, that they will actually become helpful. That you will see them as helpful to you in a couple different ways. Helpful kind of along the lines of what do I do? So kind of forming of as I minister to people, what, what, what should I be about? How should I do this? What should I do? Helpful that way. And helpful in a more personal way. Kind of like, how can I change? How can I be grown or developed? So kind of those two paths are what we're going to be working down. And I hope that what we see here is that there's something sweet. We're talking about something sweet this morning, what God has done. This is all about the cross. And a call to be about the cross. What God has done in the world to grow a people for Himself. To make a people and to grow a people for Himself. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And as I said, I hope it helps you personally in a couple of different ways. But here's the main point that I'm going to be working on. And I'm going to read the passage and develop it. Main point for this morning. God builds His church upon the cross. 
God builds His church upon the cross, so we must be cross-centered people if we hope to grow. Not hard. As I said, probably familiar to you. God builds His church upon the cross, and we must therefore be cross-centered people if we hope to grow. I'm going to develop that in two points, but first let me read the passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-5. to Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 1 Corinthians 2. Short passage. And we begin where Paul begins with a conviction about some content. A content of, of a message and really the content of, of our being individually and, and our being as a corporate body. What is at the heart and soul of who we are? Something that informs us and seeps out of us into everything. Here's the point. We are to be cross-centered people in everything. Absolutely everything. And what we proclaim out there, what we proclaim in here, and what we proclaim right here. The center of what we are is the cross. Obviously, I take this from verse 2. And we have to begin there because logically that's where Paul begins. He says some things in verse 1, but they are because of verse 2. So notice how verse 2 begins with a 4i. This is the foundation, verse 2. So it begins there with a conviction. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is deliberate. Conscious choice. I decided. He's focused on something and knowing that Paul is to be our model and everything. God, that's what God expects of us too. That's what God expects of the church and of each Christian. That we have a, a mental a mindset focused on Christ and Him crucified. Knowing only that. Which of course does not mean that we are ignorant. We don't know anything else. Paul, you read the rest of this letter, you read his other letters, you realize Paul had formal rhetorical training. He was a well-educated man. We read the book of Acts. He could hold his own debating philosophers in Athens. He could speak so eloquently and so powerfully that pagans in Lystra thought he was a god. So Paul has a whole lot going on in here and skills to dispense it. And yet he deliberately focuses on the cross. I'm going to know nothing else except this, which does not mean I know nothing else. It means I know this. Focus. Maybe that's the word to underline there, because that's the issue, isn't it? Focus. Centeredness on the gospel. The message of Christ crucified. 
And I can't preach a sermon on that without talking about the gospel. Which is kind of the point. I'm going to say some things here in a minute that most of you already well know. But that's the point. Is that our our tendency is to say, I know that. And move on to other stuff. And the conscious, deliberate choice is to say, no, I will hold that in front of me constantly. I will hold in front of me the good news that while I, while you were yet in your sin, which recall, it's not just behavior, it is attitude as well as action. It is speech and thought, inclination and feeling. Everything that is set against God and after oneself, contrary to His law, we are all in that from birth. That's who we are. And in that place, God acted. Amazing. We we read a passage about how God will act. God will come. God will send one. God will send a Savior who will reign with a kingdom. He will. He will. He did. He has. While you were yet in your sin, not after you cleaned it up. While we were yet sinners, God sent His Son. Why? To model how we should live so that we could put our lives together. No, because we couldn't put our lives together. He sent Christ to be crucified. While we were yet in our sin, separated from God, and therefore under God's right and good wrath. You know, folks, half the reason that none of this matters to us is that we don't understand wrath. We talk about it. We try to shy away from it. We don't understand wrath. Fascinating. In Ephesians 2, it talks about how we were objects of wrath. All of us were. There are a couple words that can describe anger and, and upsetness. And the one that he uses there is a slow burn. An abiding. It's not a... It's a... I've said this in other settings, but it's, it's the kind of anger that a waiting period on the purchase of a handgun, you know why they do that? So people don't go out and buy guns in fury. They cool off. It's the kind of anger that that wouldn't matter for. Because it's going to last. It'll wait. It is a wrath that is hanging out, biding its time until it will be satisfied. All of us objects of wrath. And God did something about it. It's awesome. What is Jesus doing when He hangs on the cross? Satisfying that abiding, slow-burning wrath. Satisfying it in your place. Taking it on Himself so that all that is left for you is grace. 
Christ crucified is not a simple phrase or a doctrine to be left aside. It should own you and fill you with amazement. While you were yet in your sin, God crucified His Son to remove His wrath off of you. Most of you know this. I'm preaching it to you again. And I will again next week. Hopefully you will this afternoon. This is to be at our center. Before our eyes always. It's the gospel message in a nutshell. And if you trust that message, and some here today haven't, if you do, there is hope for you to be saved. It's the gospel in a nutshell. And it is to be what our lives are centered on, what we proclaim to people out there and proclaim to ourselves in here. So Paul came proclaiming the testimony of God in verse 1, knowing nothing but this, verse 2. It's bolted to his head. He will not let go of it. And he refuses to let anything step in the way and cloud it. That's what those phrases about refusing to get caught up in lofty speech and human wisdom and plausible wise arguments. So those phrases are about. Those are clear to us. We kind of get what that means, but... They would have been even clearer to Corinthian people when they read that. In their context, what Paul is alluding to is, is a, a wide group, a whole class of people, philosopher teachers. Traveled the Greek world. This is the you know, I think ancient Greek philosophy. That stuff actually happened. And this is in the Greek world. And, and Corinth was no exception to this. And probably Corinth was actually a, one of the hot spots of this. Philosopher teachers passing through, sometimes setting up residence. And think of these guys perhaps like the talk show, the television talk show, the newspaper advice column, the motivational speaker circuit, and the self-help books of the ancient world. Kind of all wrapped together. Some of those people are educated. They're all full of people skills. Some of them are scam artists. But they all can speak well and speak cogently. And they travel, they come to town, they set up camp, and they dispense. And they, they offer arguments of, here's how one should live. Here's a philosophy of life. And that one says, no, I disagree. Here's my philosophy of life. Back and forth. Here's how to handle the problems. Here's how to make your life work. Here's what we should be aspiring to and working towards. And as someone could argue their position better than the other, his following would grow. His acclaim would grow. His compensation would grow. This is about money, just like today. It's about money. Fame and money are connected. He would gather around Him a people. And so it becomes about me gathering around me a people. Especially when you combine that with one of the most popular philosophical camps, the sophists. Perhaps you've heard that. We get a word today, sophistry which the dictionary defines as plausible yet fallacious argument. That's what the sophists are about. The sophists are about argument. For the sake of argument. And I can show myself more clever than you by how I argue. And I can prove something false to look like it's true. I'm a pretty good arguer. It would gather around him a people. And Paul says, I just want just nothing to do with that. 
because I am supremely about something that is true. And it's not about me, and it's not about my ability to argue, and my ability to present something and gather around me a following. It is about something profound. He doesn't want to confuse the issue, and he deliberately makes sure that he avoids anything that could cloud it. So we've got these two sides. We must be centered on the cross, and we must be careful to avoid anything that would cloud that. How are we on this? We have to be careful. Be careful that we don't talk about religious things and the the goodness of God and how beneficial it would be to you to have a relationship with God. While we turn the lights down and play some background music, we promise life will work out for you. There will be health and wealth and security for you. And you'll, you'll find yourself amongst a bunch of friends of people who are pretty put together. have accomplished a whole bunch in life. Managed to get all the buttons in the right holes. Polished. Don't you want to be a part of a group like this? Just raise your hand and come forward. Careful. We very often twist, twist, just a little bit. And we turn it into something other than a straightforward proclamation of something that looks stupid to the world. The cross. Remember, two weeks ago, how does the cross look to the world? Insane scandal. That's what he says in 18 to 25. Insane scandal. We sense that. Let's slide away from it a little bit. Centered on the cross without any clouds. We must be about that. In weakness and in fear and in much trembling. This is sober work. But we proclaim it to those out there and we proclaim it in here. It is sober work. Their souls are at stake. That's what the fear and trembling is about. He's not afraid of people. Fear and trembling that he has a recognition that I am about something serious and I come to this work naked, weak. We're going to talk about some power that he has later. We approach this cross-centeredness, removing all of the clouds very soberly and carefully. We are to proclaim the message of Christ crucified. It's pretty clearly stated, I think. But for me at least, that raises a question. I have this question. What exactly does that mean to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified? To be focused on, to be centered on. Okay, I hear the language. I I get the, the call to this commitment to this content. But how exactly do we do that? Because it makes some sense if if we're in a setting like this, where there is a guy 
who has had time to think a little bit about what he wants to say, and in a monologue fashion will present it, and then we'll walk away. I can see how in that setting somebody could say, I'm going to be focused on the cross, and that's it. I'll speak it and walk away. However, that's not how life is. And Paul was there 18 months. I wanted to know nothing among you while I was there for 18 months. Things come up. You've got to have some stuff to talk about. And furthermore, Paul wasn't speaking in this sort of a format. When he shuns the philosopher-teacher set, he doesn't have those avenues open to him. He's talking to people while he's making tents. In other words, just like you can, at work. He's talking to people over a meal, maybe in the park. He's not preaching from a pulpit. He's proclaiming across a table. For 18 months, stuff comes up. And if you read 1 Corinthians, you realize all kinds of stuff comes up. How does he, what does he mean? What, what am I supposed to think about when I, I say, no, nothing but Christ and Him crucified, and yet we're going to talk about divisions and sexual immorality and lawsuits and marriage and food sacrifices? How do you know nothing but Christ and Him crucified and be focused on that while living? Well, it could look like this. So what I'm trying to do here is I'm going to try to give an example of what it means, what it could look like to be passionately committed, focused, centered on the cross while talking about something else. The other day, this is a school during the week, and the other day I walked into the lounge at lunchtime right down here in the hallway and came upon half a dozen faculty members and teachers talking about the school dress code and modesty. I came in the middle of the conversation, and I joined in, and then in five or six times in trance-like repetition said, Jesus Christ and Him crucified, Jesus Christ and Him crucified, Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and then I walked out because I wanted to obey this passage. Of course not. What do you say, though, when you're talking about dress code and modesty? And you know you're going to preach on this shortly. Well, truth be told, I didn't say this. Somebody else did. And then I chimed in a little bit, but it wasn't really my place to say all of this. Here's what it could have looked like. Turn to 1 Corinthians 6. And this is just an illustration, so I'm not going to go real far into this. If you have questions, we'll get to it in a few months. But (laughs) I didn't mean it to be a joke. (laughs) Probably will be a few months. Um, But turn to 1 Corinthians 6. And the topic there, the last half, you might have a heading that says that the topic there is sexual immorality. So Paul's addressing sexual immorality, which probably means he chucked that stuff about Christ him crucified, right? No. Watch how this comes back. So he's talking there. In verse 19, we're coming in the middle of an argument. He says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. What he's talking about is he's talking to to Christians. He says, you are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, whom God gave to you. God the Father and God the Son sent God the Spirit to live inside of you. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Bought at a price. What's that about? Remember last week? Redemption. 
You were bought at a price. What's the price? Christ is the price. He has just worked Christ crucified into this discussion about sexual morality. He's come right back around to that. He can't talk for very long before he gets back to the cross. You are not your own. You were bought at a price, redeemed. You were bought out of slavery, a bondage to sin, and a place in which all you knew was that I would use my body to satisfy myself. It's my only hope to be satisfied. It's my only hope to find any kind of esteem or any kind of acclaim. I have to use this. It's what I have. You were bought out of that into a place where God the Spirit was put in you. Because of what happened at the cross, you were redeemed. You have been given the Spirit who is a down payment of a vast inheritance kept in heaven for you who believe. I'm mixing Ephesians and 1 Peter there. In other words, the Bible. A vast inheritance has been secured for you by the cross and you've been given a down payment, the Spirit who lives in you. And because of the Spirit living in you, you can commune with Him and find a foretaste of that inheritance right now to be yours. Satisfaction, delight, hope, rest. You don't have to buy it with your body. Therefore, use your body to satisfy yourself. No, that's not what it says. Therefore, glorify God in your body. He is going somewhere with this. Where he's going is no sexual morality, glorify God. But he gets there by quickly, I added a lot to it obviously, quickly looping around to, you've been bought and indwelt. Brothers, sisters, you've been bought and indwelt. Will you set your mind back in the fact that you've been bought and indwelt and you have everything you need, praise God, with your body? So here's where the two types of help can come up. If you're trying to help somebody with modesty or immorality or something of the such, something of that nature, the discussion, the issue is not hemlines and cleavage. Or if you're men, and men can be immodest just the same as women can, just the same degree, different ways, it's not muscle shirts. You know, the kind that you wear tight and that kind of bunch in right there above, that massive muscle you've got there. It's not... Or about wearing clothing or behaving in some way that in some way says, look at me. Uses your body to draw people to you and, and earn, gain a claim for you. Men can do that just the same as women can in slightly different ways. But the issue is not hemlines, cleavage, muscle shirts, cool fashions, etc. It is a heart that is in one of these two places. That is saying, I'm going to have to use this body to gain something for myself. Or I have everything that I need in Christ because of the cross. The Spirit who lives in me and fills me. And so you preach Christ and Him crucified, not change your shirt. 
You may need to help people change your shirts. I mean, that, that, that could be. If you're parenting a child, you may say, change your shirt. But after, the heart issue is the much more important issue. Somebody can wear a perfectly clothed outfit and be a modest in heart. So that you can help somebody, what, what you preach to them, you preach Christ and Him crucified, proclaim that, help them to see it and to walk in it, which I think makes clear the other way it's helpful. It's helpful for you. If you struggle with that or any number of other things, the same sort of connection can be made repeatedly on any other sin issue. That's how you can be helped. You face an issue, a a problem. You don't run at that issue first. You run to the cross first and then back at that issue. You run to the cross and you see, this is what has happened when Christ was crucified and wrath was removed off of me and I was made a friend of God. Now, all that God is, He is for me. I have no need. And as you kind of meditate on that, the desire will decrease as well. I have no need and less desire even to go chase all those things somewhere else. I have them in fullness in Christ. That's an example of what an issue in life I picked modesty because it was what camped this week for me. When issue in life, the cross at the center of it looks like. No, nothing but this. Church. Christians. This is what we are to be about. And the second point is a little bit of why. We've already seen some of why, because it is it's what God uses to change us, which is taking us right into the second point. So here's the here's the second observation. Cross-centeredness generates genuine church growth by the power of and to the glory of God. Cross-centeredness generates genuine church growth by the power of and to the glory of God. Paul's already said several times in this book, chapter 1, verse 23, we we preach Christ crucified. That's the same as being cross-centered. I'm I'm using phrases interchangeably here. And, And I hope you notice something. I can say Christ and Him crucified. Say cross centeredness I can just say Christ. I can say the gospel Last week the phrasing was, consider your calling. It's all the same. And it's all over the Bible. He's already told us that he preaches Christ crucified. And God uses that. People will regard it as crazy. Unless God calls. And then, as he says, those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, will see it as Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. There will be an effect positive effect. Not because we make it, because God makes it. God calls, but there will be an effect. But we must preach 
Christ crucified. God calls. We must preach Christ crucified. Out there and in here, both. We hold that up, proclaim that message in the manner of of a humble weakness that is not trying to cloud it or win people by some persuasion. And God will work. But that's the rub. The, the part that, that the comma, and God will work. Because the, the rub for us is that we very clearly sense the resistance of this in the world. We know that if we walk out there and start talking about this, some people won't care at all, but a number of people will get upset about it. We know there will be a conflict. We know there will be difficulty, which is the temptation that we face. So it's a bit like we come up to three forks. Maybe think of an intersection. You're on one road and you have three roads. And one of the paths that we could take is, I'm just not going to talk about anything. I'm just going to stay out of their business. I'm going to stay out of everybody's business here. I'm just going to withdraw to myself. That way I won't cause any trouble. He says to proclaim. We're not allowed that path. The, the other path we could take, though, probably the, the one that's common, is, you know, we'll get around eventually to, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. We'll get around eventually to that. But we'll start with something really positive and attractive. The problem is we never get around to that and we're commanded to start with that. To be centered on the cross. And to trust, not as verse 4 says, not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. Verses 4 and 5 are teaching us something here. Paul's concerned to not lean on his own abilities, but on the ability of the Spirit in power to open eyes. And that, that's what he's talking about when he says the, the demonstration of the Spirit and power. He's not talking in this setting about miraculous power to display many signs and wonders. That could have happened. It did, repeatedly. We could read the book of, uh, uh, the book of Acts talks about how Paul was given power to heal countless people. It was a parade of people in Ephesus. We can see how he was on the island of Cyprus and he had power to strike an opponent blind. So there could be power, but wouldn't those things be exactly the thing he's trying to avoid in Corinth? That would draw you a crowd right away for sure. We know that's what he's not talking about here because of what he just said in verse 3 about coming in weakness. That would not be weakness. There's another kind of power at work. He's depending on the power of God through the Spirit to take this message that is crazy and change it so that it appears wise and powerful. It doesn't actually change the message change the receivers of the message. The Spirit of God 
must do the work in the human heart that we cannot. We proclaim the message. We are centered on this message, both to non-believers out there and to believers in here and to this believer. I proclaim the message, but I also cry out, God, would you demonstrate your power and change? Change this person. Dead in sin, bring him to life. Blind, give him sight. That is our hope, our only hope. Otherwise, verse 5, why does Paul depend on the, on the power of the Spirit? So that, verse 5, there's a little argument here, so that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. If, if we don't depend on this, if we don't depend on this power from God, what we'll get are people who in some way have responded, who in some way have done something, but it is, it is an action or a response that is rooted in people and not in God. And therefore, as soon as the sun shines or as soon as the attractions and the pressures of the world come, the plant will wither and die or be choked out and produce nothing. In other words, it won't be genuine. But there is a strong temptation there. Because it is very difficult for us to talk to someone. And at the moment that we're bringing this up, no, if God does not show up right now, this is not going to fly. This is going to be the end of the conversation. I'm going to say it anyway. That's difficult right there. Do you believe God? Do you believe that, that that act of God the Spirit showing up is your only hope? And I'm not just talking about in speaking to non-Christians. I'm talking about in speaking to us as well. It's, it's our only hope for us that God would show us that... We're talking about the modesty thing again. We are well aware of what I can wear to get people to look at me. We see that. But God must convince someone that, no, actually, this is better for you. And God must actually show up so that the person would feel the actual pleasure of walking with God. Or I'm just talking. I've just said what might be, but they don't know the experience at all. God must show up. I must, in weakness, proclaim it. And God must show up. It's the only way there will be genuine conversion, genuine growth in the church. By the power of God, and it'll be to the glory of God. Because at the end of the day, we'll say, that wasn't me that did that, and it wasn't Paul, and it wasn't Apollos, and it wasn't Cephas. It was God. You see how this connects back? This is still in the longer discussion about division in the church. Believing this cuts out any desire to say, man, that guy's awesome, or wow, this, this is wonderful over here, because they're not doing it. God is. So it results in all the glory being secured for God, because it was all done by the power of God. Cross-centeredness generates genuine church growth. 
in evangelism, but also, and I probably really mean to say, especially in discipleship, because that's what we are doing most of the time. We're not always talking to non-believing friends, but we are always living with ourselves. And we are always dialoguing in our heads with ourselves. We get out of bed in the morning. We go to sleep at night. I'm not sure what happens while we are asleep. But I think we are engaged even then with ourselves. But we are living with us. And so discipleship is a constant issue. And this is what discipleship is. Growth in cross-centeredness. Any other growth will not be genuine. Any other growth in the end becomes growth by law. Which I said because I hope that lights up some of you. Whoa, we don't, don't want that. Right. We don't want that. The law is good. The law is precious. The law shows us what is pleasing to God, what should be, but it has no power in itself to get us there. We get there as our hearts change. And then out of the overflow of our hearts, our mouths speak as we should. Our hands act as we should. But our hearts must change. And that happens by the cross. As God takes this message and God the Spirit shows up and causes it to be precious to you. So another example. I could loop back to the modesty thing, but... Let's take fear amidst hardship. I'm going to throw out a couple of generics because I know there are some people that are in these situations, but hopefully you can apply it to your particular one. A hardship of something related to very trying health situation or a very trying financial situation. Those are common. You find yourself fearing and frantic. Questioning God. Where are you? Why? Sitting down in, in front of the, maybe in front of the bills if it's financial, or sitting down with the, with the report from the doctor, or looking ahead at the, at the course of treatment saying, my, what am I going to do? How, 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 how? And God, where are you? And you know, in the back of your mind, you know, I shouldn't be questioning God. I shouldn't be angry at God. I shouldn't be worried. I'm supposed to be content in all circumstances. You know that. What changes that? If God would take your mind and staple it to the cross, if He would take you, it would draw you over to the cross and you would see and again, this is where God the Spirit must show up. We need this, the power of the Spirit demonstrated in our lives so that you would see it, perceive it. Not just know the facts. You already know the facts. That you would perceive it as real. That He hangs there on the cross with you in mind. He hangs there on the cross completely, totally aware of this moment in time when you will face this disease, this cancer, this assortment of impossible barriers. Completely aware of that. Laying Himself out for you to take all of God's anger off of you so that you can know none of this is because God's angry with me. None of it. 
He delights in me. Because the cross has removed all of his anger off of me. And I see that. I, I know that. I believe that. So God, I sit here with the bills still the same amount in front of you, knowing that you're pleased with me. Okay, and what else do I know? That he has not just become my righteousness, but my sanctification and my redemption. He has bought me into his family. That means he's obligated to care for me. I'm his son. He's forbidden from abandoning me. Forbidden by his own law. So he will not leave me nor forsake me. Huh. Because of what he has done at the cross to make me his own, he cannot throw me away. So he is obligated to meet my needs. Now, I don't know what that looks I mean, I can imagine meeting the needs by paying off all of this or curing. Maybe that's not how he's going to do it. But whatever he does, it is him meeting my needs, being good to me in love. And if I died right now, the most gruesome of all deaths imaginable, ten seconds from now, I would be in the the lap of all glory. Do you mind make that connection? Ten seconds from now, I would be in the glory. Glory. Because of what He has done for you at the cross, if you would preach Christ crucified to yourself in the midst of this stuff, not just right now when none of it's on your mind. Maybe it is on your mind. Hopefully it is on your mind. But not just right now in church is what I'm saying. Thursday afternoon. Centered on the cross. You will mature and you will find that I am a little less shaken. That's, that's growth. That's becoming a, a disciple. Growing in your discipleship. Now you probably need other people for that. We're not intended to all be little islands. But that is how the, the cross-centered growth of the church happens. What it looks like. Can you see how it would be extremely helpful when you're looking at the bills to have another brother or sister come alongside of you and say, hand on your shoulder, yeah. But can I remind you of something? Let's pray and go to someone. That would be helpful to you. It would be helpful to me often. Which is why we talk so much about community. We must be a church that is centered on the cross because that is how God grows His church. So I plead with you, you personally and you do don't lapse what so often happens in our lives is, is we say yeah I got that I mean frankly I had a lot of that before we started talking I understand that I got that and then we lapse into some sort of a discussion that either is, is about all the problems that I'm facing and it's not about God at all, 
or it's just about what we should do. We come alongside of someone and say, don't worry, trust God. Okay, I knew that. Help them by taking them to the cross. Rehearse the gospel in your mind. I find it helpful to get a piece of paper and take pencil and write it down because it forces something in me. It's a Jews example I'm just using. Okay, I write down. God, pencil on paper, writing it down. God has claimed me for His own. Yes or no? Circle the yes. I am therefore an heir of a vast inheritance. Yes or no? Yes. God is out to rip me off. Yes or no? I write stuff like this down. God can be trusted. Yes or no? God is out to do me good. Yes. I write it down because I can't circle the wrong answer. I can't lie to myself like that. I can lie to myself if I keep it vague. And don't we do that? All your heads should nod because yes, we do that. You know the truth, but you live under the lie. Write it down and circle one and make it graphic. No, he's not to rip me off. No. I don't know what's going to happen. But is God good to me, yes or no? Yes. Other people can help us with that. We, we have to be about that. And so I plead with you, don't lapse into just talking about what should be. Push it all the way to the cross. Proof of what He is for you. What His attitude is for you. What His stance is towards you. What His heart is towards you. And therefore, what He will do for you. How? I don't know. But I know who He is. And I know what He's like for me. Do that with yourself. Do that with others. And that's centered on the cross. We must be about that as a people. Before I close, let me point out this little book which I think is now white. This is an older edition. It's called The Cross-Centered Life. We have some of these in the book table unless we've temporarily sold out. We usually don't carry a lot of any copy. You can get this anywhere. And as you can see, it's about that thick and about that big. Easy read. The Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney. This is, I think, a newer edition is white. It's all of 85 pages. And he has examples of how he brings the cross into situations in life. Some things like I've been talking about in a little more detail, different ways of looking at it. I would encourage you, pick this book up, read it, talk about it in your gospel community group, Get together men or women from your gospel community group and, and talk about this. It would not take you long to cover 80 little bitty pages. And it would be profitable for you. It would be good for you. So let me pray and close our time this morning. Father, I, I say thank you for the cross. And I recognize at the same time that I'm not nearly as thoughtful about that as I should be. I just say thank you. You have done much 
for me. You've changed me. And each one of your children who sits here, you have done much for her, much for him. Changing them. Changing their status before you. Making them a friend and an heir and a child of yours. Changing their fortunes so that even though flat broke, they are incredibly rich. And even though dying, they have life. You have done that. Bless your name. And I pray then for myself and for my brothers and for my sisters here that You, by the power of Your Spirit, would cause this truth to live in us and to run in us, to sustain us and give us hope. This is Your light and Your truth. May it lead us to Your very presence, You our joy. Please. Would You do that in us now today and tomorrow? Would You grow Your church, changing us who are here? And as we change, emboldening us and filling us with such hope and joy that it runs out to those around us who need it. Thank You for the cross. Jesus, thank You for embracing it. Spirit, thank You for planting it in us and making it shine. I pray this in Your name, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.